Open mine eyes that I may see Glimpses of truth thou hast for me Open mine eyes, illumine me Spirit divine Love of my life, I am crying I am not dying, I am dancing Dancing along in the madness There is no sadness like to invite you to a soul-level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guests' spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. David Huber has been serving as the pastor at Plymouth Congregational UCC in Eau Claire since August of 2004. His taste in music is wide and innovative and serves to open and balance the purely intellectual part of his character, and it's a pleasure to welcome him to Song of the Soul. David, thanks for joining me for Song of the Soul. You're welcome. It's good to be here. Thank you. How big a congregation is the Plymouth UCC Congregational Church? It's Plymouth United Church of Christ is the actual name. It is about 220 members. The church was founded as second congregational church in the mid to late 1800s. How long have you been with this church and where did you come from before that? I have been at Plymouth since August of 2004, and where I was before that, I lived in in New York City for many years. I'd gone to seminary there. Most of that time before coming here, I had served Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims in Brooklyn Heights. Are you a thoroughbred UCC member? Did you grow up that way? Is that your entire history? It is. I have only ever been a member of UCC churches. And within the UCC, the only churches I've ever been involved with have been from the congregational side of the United Church of Christ. One of the strengths of the congregational tradition is that it was not uh, a top-down structure. There is no higher authority. 
telling the people what they need to believe. There were no tests of faith or doctrine or dogma. And I'm kind of simplifying here a little bit. But the congregational tradition is we are all people covenanted together on a journey together. But we may all believe different things and have different opinions. And they certainly do all have different opinions. For the most part, we're kind of socially liberal. In 2005 at the General Synod, we passed a resolution in favor of gay marriage. I think we were the first denomination to ordain a gay person and to ordain a woman, and I think also the first to ordain an African-American back in the 1800s. So kind of as a group, we do that, but within, there is still a wide variety. There are a lot of people that are not in support of gay marriage. There are a lot of people that think that that's wrong. So on the outside, we may look fairly liberal and socially liberal, but we're very diverse, and it does make conversation both exciting and difficult at times. You mentioned while we were going through reviewing your music before we started the interview that you like dissonance in your music. Is this a (laughs) theological nature? (laughs) You know, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, I think that could be. I often worry when things are going too smoothly. I like there to be a little bit of chaos and a little bit of dissonance because then it seems like it's more honest and there's maybe a better chance that something good is going to come out of it when people can disagree with each other. Well, let's start getting into your music, David. I think your music reflects the kind of diversity that maybe is part of your whole congregational background, your whole congregational nature. For instance, by starting out with Grateful Dead and including a lot of requiems, I guess there is a theme there, isn't there? (laughs) A lot of people would not associate a song of the soul with music by the Grateful Dead, and it's perhaps their loss. Why did you pick Terrapin Station by the Grateful Dead as part of your Song of the Soul? I picked this one really for much more personal than theological reason. I had gotten into the Grateful Dead probably my senior year in high school, maybe right at the end of the senior year. He was going through that, that period of, of excitement for the future, but kind of mourning of the past and leaving the safety of school and leaving all the friends, but yet also looking toward college and for some reason, I just I latched on to this particular song off the album, Terrapin Station. And it has a beautiful melody and it has a lot of neat parts in it. And there's one line in there, and I'm telling you earlier that I have never tried to figure out what the lyrics of this mean. I have no idea. But the, the one line in there, singer says, I will not forgive you if you will not take the chance. That so spoke to me as one of the first in my family, and I'm from a huge family. There's 62 in my generation. I had 62 cousins. So I was one of the first to go to college out of that group and was the first to be moving out of state. So in a sense, I was taking a big chance. But mostly what the song reminds me of is that summer of 1984 after I graduated, hanging out with friends and driving around and had my own car and listened to this in the car. And it was a song of freedom and excitement and the future was whole and open. Let's listen here to Terrapin Station by the Grateful Dead, or at least an excerpt of it. Shadows from the flames of 
built things we've never seen. So, David, where did you go after that senior year in high school? Did you go off to college, or did you head to seminary right away? What was your path? Well, I went off to college. I went to the GMI Engineering and Management Institute. I went there and got my degree in electrical engineering. I guess that's exactly what I would have predicted for a congregational (laughs) pastor, a congregational minister as an electrical engineer. There must have been some transition that happened between the two. It wasn't right from there to plugging into a new congregation. I think I'd even known in high school, I was very active in the church, and I think I knew in high school that I was destined to be a pastor and a minister. But I was also, and still am, incredibly fascinated by science and engineering and computers. So I went off to college for that, and I did, while I was in college, GMI was and still is a cooperative school, so all the students there have companies that sponsor them through the program. So we would go to school for three months and then go work for three months as an engineer and go back to school and do that for five years. And during my work terms, I started to realize that as much as I loved the school part and the learning, especially the pure science, just this knowledge stuff, the work was not fulfilling. And I was lucky enough to get a workplace back home, so I was able to be very involved still in my church while I was on my work periods. And I just came to realize that's where my happiness was, was in the church and where I felt like I was 
making a difference and, and, and feeling fulfilled. That was my calling. The next one is by Philip Glass. It's called Einstein on the Beach Building. Why is this part of your Song of the Soul? Philip Glass's music is uh, very much a part of my spiritual awakening and spiritual grounding because his music tends to be repetitive and very meditative. So it's music that I can get really just get lost in and decide what instrument to follow or what pattern to follow. So I've I chose this one because Philip Glass's opera, Einstein on the Beach, well, and I discovered Philip Glass in college, and this was one of the first things that I'd heard was this opera, Einstein on the Beach. And I had, for a number of years, thought of these other kinds of music in my head. I had played violin since I was a child and had been in the orchestra, so I liked classical music, I certainly liked rock music, but I had these ideas of a more abstract music. I'm like, why doesn't someone try to do this? And when I heard Philip Glass, and Frank Zapp is also one of these, I heard this music, I'm like, yes, this is what I've been thinking of. And also the, the Pendereski that we'll hear later, I'm like, yeah, this is just, why doesn't someone just do noise? The opera Einstein on the Beach has long fascinated me just because it's so long. It's five hours. There's no dialogue. There's no conversation. There are no characters. It's just music and people singing numbers and solfege syllables. I'm choosing this this particular section building out of here partly because it's one of the smaller sections of the opera. So we can kind of listen to it in this program, but also because it's one of the most sort of straight-through, unchanging pieces and for me, this is this is so much who I am. It's kind of just this process. It just slowly unfolds, and then uh, this bluesy saxophone comes on top, and the choruses, and it's very meditative. You know, it's almost like Buddhist or Taoist, also in nature, just letting things unfold however they want to unfold, and wherever it goes, it goes. And that speaks to me also very much uh, spiritually. Just unfold. Go with life. Let's listen here to a piece by Philip Glass. It's from the opera called Einstein on the Beach, and it's a section called Building, and we're going to listen to uh, just a couple minutes of that 10-minute segment called Building. You're a musician yourself. Is it possible for you to be both the minister and to be in the choir? Do you get to use your musical talents as part of your service? I do sing in the choir that we have at Plymouth Church. So, yeah, I, I'm able to do that. Otherwise, I've been a musician for a long time, but I'm not very comfortable being a soloist. So I don't personally perform music, but I am part of the choir. I've played violin with the children at the Christmas pageant that we do. But mostly I think I use my musical experience in just deciding what music's going to be used in the service and how to bring it in. 
let's listen here to some music by Steve Reich. It's Music for 18 Musicians, Section 3A. on to your next song. It's by Pink Floyd. Are you a big Pink Floyd fan in general? Yes. 
<laughs> I am very much. What about top bands? I would say probably since junior high is, is when I first got into Pink Floyd, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Wish You Were Here kind of era, and just got more and more into them. And then, you know, The Wall came out and they just had great albums. And I have never, ever gotten bored with Pink Floyd. You know, this um, particular recording that we're going to listen to, I've had for 20 years, and I've probably listened to it a uh, hundred times or more and, and never get bored with it, especially to hear David Gilmore playing guitar. As I've said before, I, I like music that's long, long pieces that I can really get into. And this is Pigs, three different ones, which are originally off the Animals album, which even on the Animals album was long, but this live version is even much longer. What's the song about? What is this reference to pigs about? The whole album of animals was a kind of concept album, and Floyd divided people into three kinds. There are the pigs, the greedy, self-righteous, kind of the people at the top. There are the sheep, the people that just follow directions and that don't ask questions. And then there are the dogs, the ones that will stab you in the back, that attack from behind. They'll do whatever they can to claw their ways to the top. So pigs is about the self-righteous and the people in power. The song's about three different pigs, one of which is Margaret Thatcher. Another one is, and I don't, is about a minister. I, I don't know if it's about a specific one, but about a minister that takes money from people and uses it for his own ends. And another one was Mary Whitehouse, who was a, a woman in Britain in the mid to late 70s that wanted TV to be censored, wanted all sex and sexual references to be taken off TV. And she had also been a big critic of Pink Floyd because of their drug use, and she was very anti-drug and... Uh, Kind of self-righteous, uh, according to Pink Floyd. So they nailed her in the song. All right. Well, let's listen to a little bit from that song, Pigs, three different ones. It's a little bit right near the end. Thank you. 
I think that you like meditative music and meditative movements in music. And being fast and loud has nothing to say against being meditative for you, does it? No, I think fast and loud can be very meditative in its own way. It's, it's yeah, kind of like I, I talked about with the, the piece from Einstein on the Beach, you know, or the Allman Brothers blues solos or this Pink Floyd piece. It's just someone taking us somewhere. Let's go where they're going and follow along, and it might be fast and noisy or slow or whatever, but let's just go on the ride and see what happens. And that, to me, is very meditative. Your next song, which is by Frank Zappa, I connect Frank Zappa with some really creative lyrics. I mean, Stinkfoot and Don't Eat the Yellow Snow and all of that kind of thing. I connect him with some creative kind of zany lyrics. How does Outside Now fit into your Song of the Soul? Let me say, Zappa is one of the, the few people whose lyrics I do pay attention to. One thing that I appreciate so much about Frank was that it was always the music first for him. And he would have been happy to never have any music with lyrics, but he knew people wanted to hear words, so he put words in. And so his words were always insightful and sarcastic and wonderful. I am a huge, huge Zappa fan. He's one of my musical heroes. I loved his music and loved him. Um, the song that I picked here, Outside Now, comes from the rock opera Joe's Garage, which was... A rock opera that Frank wrote of a future American in which music has been made illegal. And the main character, Joe, was a guitarist in a band, and he gets put in jail because he was playing music. And the song Outside Now is toward the end of the rock opera while he's in jail. He is kind of dreaming of a guitar solo, because even though the government said he can't do music, he's still got it in his head. For Frank, music was almost his religion, and this particular recording comes from his 1988 tour, which is just a year or two after the PMRC hearings in Congress, the Parents Music Resource Center that Tipper Gore had set up wanting to censor rock music and censor the lyrics and wanted to change the way that the music industry put the music out and labeled albums so that parents weren't surprised at lyrics and all this stuff. And Frank was one of the three musicians asked to testify there. And so this solo comes just a year or two after that experience. And I think of all of Frank's solos, which tend to be less emotional and more technical, this is one where I think this hit him emotionally. Uh, I chose this one because I had to get Frank in here, and this is his solo that speaks to me most deeply. David, you are an electrical engineer, and on the Myers-Briggs scale, there's a TF continuum, and usually the engineers are going to be the T, the thinkers, as opposed to the F, the feelers. And ministers are usually Fs, yeah. But, I mean, you went from the T universe to the F universe, and as you've talked about your music, it seemed very clear to me that you were gravitating towards the emotional context, the emotional waves of the music. Where do you sit on that continuum? Mark, I am actually, I'm a very high T. I usually score a, a 19 on T and one or two on F. Not that I'm not an emotional person, that's just how I make decisions. I think I have to go back to when I was a kid. I grew up, my father was an alcoholic, and I remember kind of a conscious decision somewhere around junior high. There was a lot of pain around that, and I loved Mr. Spock from Star Trek, so I said, oh, I'm going to be more Spock-like. You know, Not that I won't have emotions, but I'm going to try not to respond to them and try not to base my life on it. And that was a great way to hide the pain and avoid it. And I would actually say it was healthy. It seemed to work pretty well for me. But then that has meant, I'd thank God for music. Music was the one place where the emotional stuff could happen. And I think that's why music is so important to me, because that was the one place in my life that it was 
it was always safe to be emotional and probably why I react so strongly to music. Thanks for sharing that. It's something I resonate pretty deeply with myself. Let's listen to a very emotional piece by Frank Zappa. It's called Outside Now. And actually, we're mainly just listening to a guitar solo that's part of that piece. piece you have for your song of the soul i can't play you want to explain to the audience why i can't play it 
uh, the beauty of it is, uh, Frank Zappa actually did do a recording of this piece uh, a couple of years before he died. Another one that I I have chosen is John Cage's Four Minutes Thirty Three Seconds. I love what John Cage did. Is said that there is more to music than just the notes or what instruments can make. So he wrote this piece in which the pianist or whoever you want to have perform it comes out, sits in front of their instrument for four minutes and thirty three seconds and does nothing, and then leaves with the idea being that there was also incredible music always going around us just in the sounds of nature or in the sounds of people breathing, paper rustling. All of sound is musical and spiritual and godly in its own wonderful way. I think I'm going to have us listen to just 15 seconds of it ourselves. It resonates with me as a Quaker where our worship is based on silence and our silence out of which people may or may not and frequently don't speak. So let's take 15 seconds and this will be Mark and David performing a few seconds of 4 minutes 33 seconds. In case you missed it before, that was a short portion, perhaps, of John Cage's 4 minutes and 33 seconds. Let's step on to some music that actually goes into Latin. Do you particularly gravitate to Latin singing? I do. I, and I remember you asked me about, uh, we were talking about lyrics before and how I really don't care about lyrics, but I do when it's in Latin. Because usually if it's in Latin, it's church music or religious or, you know, somehow came out of the church tradition or liturgical tradition. So then if it's in Latin, it does have meaning to me. And this next piece is a piece by Morton Lauridsen, who's a, a modern composer, still alive, still composing, a piece that he did in the late 80s called Lux Eterna. And the movement that we're going to hear is one called O Nata Lux, which is the first line of the text, O Nata Lux de Lumine, which is O Light, Born of Light, talking about Jesus. I chose this one because I fell in love with this piece last year. I'm a member of the Master Singers here in Eau Claire, and we sang this as our Easter concert music in 2005. This particular one has it has a very special kind of meaning to me because the Master Singers were scheduled to perform, uh, to sing at Mass at the Basilica in St. Paul last spring, and it just happened that was the day the Pope died. So we sang this piece, O Not to Luke's at the Mass uh, a few hours after he died, and that was an extraordinary experience. And the recording that we're going to hear is the Master Singers, so you, you might hear my voice, uh, you may not. Uh, but this is the Master Singers led by Gary Schwartzhoff here in Eau Claire.
The next piece you picked out is also in Latin and also has that same phrase, lux eterna. When Quakers speak about God, we frequently speak with some of the metaphors, light and seed and spirit are some of the terms we use most commonly. In your UCC environment, how do you normally speak of God? Is it always God, Christ, or is Luke's part of what you say as part of your services? Yeah, we use a, a lot of metaphors and, and a lot of imagery. We don't do it in Latin, so we don't say Luke's, but yeah, Jesus, light of the world, bread of the world, the vine, God the creator, God the sustainer, the water of life, water of the world, lots of metaphors. And why did you pick out a Polish requiem for part of your song of the soul? You know, I do like dissonance, and I really like modern music, especially music by living composers, stuff that's kind of new and recent, you know. And I love this particular requiem by Krzysztof Penderecki, a Polish requiem he wrote in memory of all the suffering that the Polish people had gone through, and this was written also in the 1980s. I love the sound of this. Uh, Penderecki does stuff with voices, with, uh, with with clusters and and the way that they pitch and sliding up and down in pitch and and this has so much like spooky sounding music, and it's so fitting for the requiem and speaks so much to the suffering that the people have gone through. First time I heard this, I fell in love with the whole requiem. I was just like, wow, this is, and I'd never heard voices do music like this before. Let's listen to the voices convey that to us. Polish Requiem, Lux Eterna, by Krzysztof Penderecki.
tell us about the next Requiem that's part of your Song of the Soul. This is a piece from a Requiem that I composed in 1997 as my master's thesis for my master's of divinity in seminary. I mentioned earlier, grew up in an alcoholic household, and that was my dad. He stopped drinking when I was in college, and there were uh, a few years that I knew dad that he was sober, but I would say those that have had alcoholic parents can probably resonate. Even after they stop drinking, it's a good five years or more before you can really trust him and start getting into a, a relationship. But my dad and I had finally started to form a relationship where I felt like this is someone that I can trust and that I honored and wanted to be in my life again, especially in, in January of 94. We got to spend that whole month together. And then I went back to seminary, and then I left for Hawaii to do an internship in Honolulu, and then my dad died. So when I came back to seminary, I still needed to work theologically and musically because that's where the emotions are for me is in music. And that's I needed to talk about my dad, but not with words and do it in music and kind of mourn this relationship that we almost had. And so I composed this requiem as a form of catharsis and also a way to, to honor and to just deal with my stuff. Uh, I composed that, and it was performed by the seminary choir on Monday, Thursday in 97. And this section is the uh, Libra May. And one thing I'll, I'll say also about all these Latin texts and pieces that I'm choosing, another reason they have such meaning for me is because they're liturgical. They're not just songs or music, but these are songs and music that are talking to God. And the Libra May is saying, Free me from eternal death upon that terrible day when heaven and earth shall be moved. When thou comest to judge the world with fire, I am afraid and trembling on account of the coming judgment and wrath. This is Requiem in Memory of My Father. Libra May, and it's by David Huber.
This next one deals with Hiroshima in Japan. It's a threnody for the victims of Hiroshima, again by Christoph Pendereski. Why is this piece particularly evocative for you? Once people start listening to it, they'll realize this is, this is not music in the traditional sense of music. And it really speaks to me. I, the, the dropping of an atomic bomb is a, is a hell of an event and a, and a very destructive event. And, and this is a piece of music done in the memory of those that were vaporized and died of radiation and suffered and starved and went through all the trauma after we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. These instruments are screaming and crying. A couple of years ago, I was in Hiroshima and got to go to the museum, and they have preserved a lot of melted lunchboxes and, and melted school kids' clothing, you know, stuff that melted on their bodies and pulled off later, and uh, glass that was melted, and pictures of the destruction and, and the suffering and the radiation. So it was horrible, horrible, horrible stuff that, that happens after you drop a nuclear bomb on people. This piece of music just speaks to me of all of the horror that violence, and not even just nuclear weapons, but violence of any kind or war, just the stupidity and the horror of it all. You have another connection with Japan. You want to mention anything about that? My fiance Yuki, is a Japanese native. We met in seminary in 1997. She actually performed in the Requiem that I composed, so we also heard her voice. She is from Japan, from Kyoto, and back living in Kyoto now. So there is that connection, and Yuki has told me stories of her father, who was uh, probably around five years old at the end of World War II, who had told her stories of the struggles with the lack of food and the lack of medical supplies, and the United States were burning everything down with the firebombing, and he went through that experience and told her many stories of that and stories of uh, after the... United States came in of him and his other friends running behind the American GIs asking for chocolate, probably because it's sweet and the Japanese don't do much with very sweet stuff. So yeah, there's a, a little bit of a personal connection with Japan, and especially after witnessing and walking the streets of Hiroshima myself. Well, this next piece, or portion of a piece that we're going to be listening to, it's not a happy piece. It's meant to convey the horrors of Hiroshima. It's Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima by Christoph Pendereski.
So the last piece you chose by Gustav Mahler. What part does this have in your spiritual journey? Where does it fit in with where you've been and where you're going? I've saved the granddaddy for the last. This is the piece of music that speaks to me on a subconscious, spiritual, emotional level, and I don't think I could ever say why. I have no idea. There's just something in this music that, from the first time I I heard it a couple of decades ago, has just entered into my spine and into my head and into my heart and my toes and, and has never let go. It's just pure goodness all the way through. I get tears. Beyond the music, the words in this are so beautiful. It's all It's about resurrection. So you have these words, rise again, yes, rise again. And that's the, the whole end of the piece. The choir finally comes in after an hour, hour and 15 minutes of sitting down while the orchestra goes on, and they sing those words. And I think that's a great way to end all things, all misery and all suffering ends eventually in resurrection and new life. Let's listen to the last song in David Huber's Song of the Soul. It's Symphony Number no. 2, the fifth movement, the finale by Gustav Mahler. Thanks, David. This has been a long-anticipated song of the soul, and it's so great to get you here. Such rich musical texture and such rich life you're living. Thank you, Mark. And it's been good, uh, finally, to do this and to share music that's been meaningful to me with others, and hopefully people will find something in it. You've been listening to an interview with David Huber, who is the pastor of the Plymouth Congregational UCC in Eau Claire. 
You can hear this interview again via my website, northernspiritradio.org, where we have a list of the music and other links applying to this program. Song of the Soul is produced by Mark Helpsmeet. If you'd like to share your Song of the Soul with the listeners of WHYS-FM Radio, please contact me via my email address, helpsmeet at usa.net. That's H-E-L-P-S-M-E-E-T at usa.net. And please join me Sundays at 11 a.m. for Song of the Soul. You can be happy, let in the light, it will heal you. And you can feel you and sing out a song of the